Well, summer certainly feels like it's here. Uh, But before we get into this episode, welcome, by the way. Hey, good to see you. Or hear you. I can't see you. I can't hear you either, but um, it's good to have you here. (laughs) I'm making huge assumptions on your presence. Um, But listen, I'm just back from the US and I brought back a souvenir with me. That souvenir is covid uh, so I am COVID-y and I also have asthma, so that means I'm a bit lungy, <laughs> which means for me that I'm very breathless, not in a good way, and this could, depending on where you're listening to it, sound like one of those dirty phone calls that your mum used to tell you to hang up straight away. I apologise if that if it sounds like that and that is not what you want. If it is what you want, please send money. Um, but I'm also extremely fatigued. And funny, I can't really speak in long sentences. So um, I'm hoping that this is going to be a good episode two and not a an annoyingly breathless one. But listen, I'm in the garden. It is a stunning day. It's hot today. It's not as hot as America. I was in Las Vegas and that was 40 degrees Celsius. Um, 39 when I left. But it's still utterly flipping gorgeous. And listen, this is uh, episode two and it's a very special episode. Uh, This is a wildflower meadow special. Um, There's so much to cover about the Wildflower Meadow and what I'm doing here with Wildflower Meadow and how to make your own, that I kind of felt it was worth just putting it all in one special episode because, you know, the garden has planned (laughs) a number of different areas. And I tell you what, in the 10 days I've been away, it's a veritable jungle out here. I mean, the lawn is in places, I would say, three foot tall, and daunting. <laughs> uh, that needs a mow. Come back to that in a little bit. Um, there are pots that I had sort of positioned and arranged in the two big borders that flank either side of the main sort of lawn area. They need to go in, but I don't. Well, and also the big overgrown wildlife area is incredibly overgrown. There's weeds everywhere. The, it just it was very daunting coming back because <laughs> there's so much still to do but you know what it's interesting that, that nature's kind of directing what i need to do in the garden next because you know i wanted to finish particular projects you know i'd started the lawn and the borders and i thought well, it might be nice to you know finish those off but it's just the time of the year isn't it time of year and weather dictates always what you should do in the garden so i sowed some seeds um that really urgently needed sowing before i left lots of those have germinated um so the next step after i've done this wildlife garden is uh, and the wildflower meadow sorry is to start on the kitchen garden herbs vegetables fruits um big sort of um barbecue outdoor kitchen that I'm going to create uh, but we'll, we'll kind of come to that maybe in the next episode I'm not sure got some exciting guest interviews coming up as well um, but just to remind you um, because obviously we're new into this series this series is charting my development of a brand new garden so I've moved house I've inherited with the house a half acre of well it was just 
grass really, overgrown grass. There was literally nothing in it. Although I just came back yesterday and found a hosta tucked under a tree that started growing. So that was nice. Free plants. Everyone loves free plants. Um, and I'm splitting the garden into four very specific zones or, or regions and then softening those areas up. But um, the whole of this episode is you coming with me on that journey to uh, see how the garden develops, I suppose, and for me to show you what I'm doing because I've always been really, really keen on wildlife gardening and wild gardening. I think we haven't asked enough questions, I think, over the years and that's resulted in us, you know, importing lots of plants and seeds. That then resulted in lots of um, non-native pests and non-native species that become invasive and there's a better control on that now but DEFRA still has, you know, a huge list of, of problem pests and, uh, and problem plants that we're still trying to tackle. Um, and it's interesting, you know, because this book, Everyday Gardening by John Coots, who is an ex-curator of Kew, was published in 1931. And I just found it on a shelf and thought, you know, that would be really interesting to see how gardening's changed over the years and whether I could create a garden um, sticking to the advice that John gives in this book. And, um, well, so far I can. And it is, it's been eye-opening. Um, because, of course, back in 1931, pre-war, there weren't loads of pesticides and chemicals being used and there wasn't a huge demand. So um, it's worked out pretty well. You know, so far it's very wildlife friendly, everything he's suggesting. And, of course, this is pre the mass commercialization of gardening that we've got now where you know there are hybrids upon hybrids and purple pineapple cucumbers and tomatoes that taste like strawberries and all these random things um so you're getting a lot more native and heritage planting suggestions which i'm really cool with um but the the other sort of element of the garden is that it must be on a budget um, because there's so much to do I just don't have the money to create you know a garden based on this scale um, and I don't think most people do actually so I'm trying to keep things as simple as possible and as effective as possible um, but we'll talk about that a little bit later on this episode is a very special episode about wildflower meadows now I'm a big big advocate of wild gardening and I don't think it looks messy. You know, some people do say that um, wild gardening looks messy and out of control and they don't understand wild meadows. But done well, I think it looks utterly beautiful. It's alive with movement as the, as the wind kind of takes the grasses and the stems of the flowers. Um, it's alive with insects and pollinators and birds and biodiversity. So you can feel incredibly sort of smug <laughs> about the good stuff that you've put in your garden but also it replaces a really fundamentally important part of of meadows and gardens that we've lost you know i mean it's the the figure that's quoted is that 97 percent of wild meadows in the united kingdom have been lost since around about the war and that's pretty epic you know it's little wonder that the splatter test that people call it um is so significant if you've not heard about that that's the thing where you know when i was a kid uh, even when i first started driving actually 20 odd 21 years ago whatever it was you'd be driving along in the summer and your windscreen would be covered with bugs and you'd have to go to you know the 
petrol station or Halfords or somewhere like that and get one of those special bug sponges. It was all sort of scratchy and porous so that you could scrape off all the bugs. And now you hardly get any bugs at all on your windscreen. And that's alarming when you think about what that means. It means they're not there to kill, they're not there to you know, fly into your windscreen. Um, and I, you know, ecologists and, and uh, naturists are concerned about what that means long term for the environment. So our way of being able to help that and enhance biodiversity is to create areas that, you know, aren't plain cut lawns and aren't um, overly cultivated areas. And you know what's really fascinating is I set out to do this on a budget and wild meadows uh, and sympathetic planting to wildlife is so cheap. It's the most cost-effective way. Um, You might remember last episode I was talking about the hedge and some of the suggestions I've had on social media. Um, You can catch up, by the way, on all of the stuff that's going on in the garden. I'm posting pretty much every day different videos and posts on Instagram at that chairs rose. But I had this dilemma with the fence, you know, 70-odd foot of fence uh, that needed installing. And it was insanely eye-wateringly expensive because of um, the price of timber and the scarcity of of wood. And so I planted native hedgerow. Um, And, you know, instead of it being something like, I think I was quoted about £6,000 for this fence, um, I did it for, I think, about £350. uh, and it took me three days to four, if you count the bits out the front, to install install 300 um, hedgerow. So, yeah, that was pretty cool. So the same thing with um, wild meadows is that actually it's, you know, it's a cheap, easy way to get an abundance of flowers time and time again. Most meadow mixes have a mixture of annual and perennial seeds. Um, so, you know, you'll get flowers this year, but not next year, but then you'll get flowers every year of certain varieties. And you can add them in as well. Now, I've got some mixes here, um, and the reason I'm sat down in the garden is because I have... <laughs> I guess because I'm knackered. I'm finding with COVID that I can't actually do very much. Um, I'm a lot weaker than I was before. Um, you know, I was just trying to take some turf up to shape a bit of the um, lawn out the front that bordered the area that I'm going to sow with the wildflower seed and I found that really difficult to do and I'm having to rest a lot more as well so I was going to record this while I was actively doing uh, planting the wild meadow but there's no way that's happening gang it's too difficult so I've got some mixes here now I as I think I spoke to you before, I had a little look in um, John's book, and there's nothing in there to tell you about how to plant a wild meadow, because back then they didn't have the problem. There were plenty of wild meadows, you didn't need to plant your own. Um, but there is lots of advice in there about how to sow seeds and how to prepare the ground. And of course that's all with a hand rake. Now, the largest wild meadow area here is is a meadow. Um, I guess it's a mini meadow in terms of size, but it's a 1,500 square foot. So um, that's it's a pretty sizable amount when you've had to take all of the grass away, weed it, rake it all, seed it, trample down the seeds and water it every other day. Um, You know, it's pretty, it's not a small amount of work. Uh, And then, of course, there are the other little areas as well. So let me quickly 
go through um, because I want to explain to you how to successfully sow your meadow or your meadow area. It might be a strip of grass and I'm doing lots of tests here. Um, so we've got the main meadow area, there's a little strip that's, I don't know, couple of feet wide by about 10 foot long um, sort of problem area underneath a cherry tree a bit scrappy not really sure what to do with it there's some seeding that's going to go in there um, there's a long strip all down the side of the house that's pretty shady funnily enough there's a um, you know a, a mixture of wildflower seed that's going to be ideal for that and then there's all out the front as well now i've chosen um uh, i've got a couple of different mixes i've got my own mix that i've created for um we've sort of banked up created a big bank of soil which was a lot of the scrap soil that came off when we scalped the um you know the, the meadow area and some of the other areas that i've been tidying up and rather than just you know chucking it out i thought we'd try and put it to use so we've sort of created a big bank along one side of the garden where there are these hideous uh, fir trees that somebody before us butchered i mean they look terrible you can see on instagram some of the videos there so where that bank is I've created a, a little mix of all sorts of different seeds that I had really, calendula and phacelia, crimson clover, mustard, um, what else is in there, poppies, all sorts of native, um, I think there might even be a bit of oilseed rape in there as well, but they're all native seeds. Yeah, I'm just going to chuck there and see what happens, I'm not too bothered about those i'll just keep them watered and see what comes through it'll be a bit of survival of the fittest but for the rest of the areas i've gone to a company called meadow in my garden um and meadow in my garden are a community interest company which means that um it's not just all about sort of profiteering there's a there's a real core message behind what they do and why they do it lots of research they work a lot with community groups um, and obviously by the name meadow in my garden their core sort of um, activity is to encourage people to think about biodiversity and encourage biodiversity in, in uh, planting choices. So this is, I'm so excited, I've got a box here of different things. Now the main area and the main sort of wild meadow area, I've chosen their mix called Bee Heaven. And this is, quote unquote, a glorious selection, I'll be the judge of that, of tall, colourful flowers that have been carefully chosen to provide a high-quality food source for our domestic honeybees and for bumblebees and solitary bees. <clears throat> now, 1,500 square foot of, you know, amazing food for bees, I think, is pretty awesome, isn't it? Um, and by the looks of it, there's cornflower and cosmos and sunflowers and phacelia and some other stuff. Now, it does say on the back what's in there, <laughs> but they're all in Latin. Oh, there's borage, um, and I don't speak Latin. There's echium in there as well. There is cosmos, a couple of different cosmos, actually. Um, Nepeta, that's uh, catmint, phacelia... Um, Helianthus, uh, I don't know what that one is. Um, oh, that's an exciting one, don't know what that one is either. So, um, these have been sewn by hand. Now, the nice thing about this is they come in brown paper bags, so nice and recyclable, and it's really, really fundamentally simple to sew. Um, but there is a kind of caveat, um, but I'm going to come to that in a second, because I've had, since I've been mentioning that I've been planting wildflower seeds, I have had so many people contact me 
to say, I've tried it, it didn't work, um, and I've tried it several times, I've wasted loads of money on wildflower seeds before, um, can, have you got any advice, where do you get your seed from? And it made me realise that actually it's something that I think a lot of people would like to do, or they like the idea of, but they literally have no idea where to start. So we're going to cover that in a second. So, bee heaven out the back, um, which I'm very excited about. Uh, now there's lots of sort of pinks and purples, which is classic of bee-friendly colours. Um, bees are particularly attracted to um, to purples um, and and pinks, so that will contrast really well with the green lawn behind it and a lot of the dense green shrubs in the borders and also around the patio area, which is before uh, it's not there yet. In fact, I'm currently sat on the patio area now, which looks like a building sign. I'm sat on stones. Um, oh, I must tell you in a minute, <laughs> so funny, I was out the front watering where I put some of the wildflower seed and uh, there's a problem area outside the front, sort of alongside the driveway and Meadow in my garden, a uh, lovely Paul at Meadow in my garden said, oh, I've got a great mix that I think you should try there, uh, sort of specifically for problem areas and I'm really pushing the boundaries with this because <laughs> with problem areas it's <laughs> basically a shingle beach um, with dusty, rubbishy soil. So we'll see if anything grows there at all. But um, obviously, I'd raked it around a little bit, de-weeded it, and then sown the, <laughs> the seed and then watered it. So there were these people driving past looking at a man watering pebbles, like a madman watering his mini beach outside the um, So that's outside the back. Around the patio, um, I'm going to have... Um, jasmine, so there'll be you know lush greens and whites, which will contrast beautifully with the the colours in the meadow as well. And I am going to cut a little um, path through the meadow, one to the workshop that um, I've got over there, and one to the lawn, which goes through to the wild area at the very back of the garden. So I might put some turf down, I think, in time. But we'll cross all of that when we get to it. It's amazing how accomplishing it feels to do the things in the garden that I'm doing you know the sowing the seeds and and you'll be the same too gang you know if you're out in the garden um getting your veg ready uh cutting things back to stimulate a bit of extra growth and make them a bit bushier and stronger and if you've been, maybe you've been transplanting trees I don't know or seedlings uh, maybe you're creating a new area in the garden I'd love to know let me know um, you can catch me on Instagram at that Jez Rose I'd love to see some pictures and and what you're up to um but I think it's this, um, you know, there's a there's a lovely kind of feeling this time of the year to doing, but it is overwhelming. You know, as, as satisfying as it is, you you really do begin to feel the pace picking up a little bit because, you know, the weeds are starting to come out and there's plants that need planting and the seedlings need to be checked on and you need to water stuff and you need to have your areas ready in order to get and for me that's particularly overwhelming because there's literally nothing here so you know if I want to grow tomatoes then I need pots ready somewhere or I need you know the kitchen garden ready somewhere and some of the pots that I need have got other plants in so I've got to go find somewhere where those plants are going to go so it frees up a pot so I can have the pot somewhere else yeah it's um it's wonderfully it's a great feeling but everywhere I look I do kind of think gosh there's yet more to do you know and I can't do this until I've done that it's a bit like Tetris isn't it anyway moan over <laughs> well I don't know about over um <laughs> so outside the front there's a mix that meadow in my garden do called aromatic garden and this one I'm really really excited about 
Um, they say this is a gorgeous collection of medicinal, culinary and fragrant flowers. Um, and it's a feast for the senses, both beautiful and practical. It offers rich educational opportunities where you can all pop round, gang, and come and sit in the meadow and we'll have a chat. Bring your notebook. It'd be like having... <laughs> do, you remember, do you remember when you were young and you're on the really nice day, just randomly your teacher would say, we're going to have a lesson out, outside, and it was like the most magical thing that ever happened. Oh, looks like I've got that in a bag. Um, and a valuable addition to the kitchen garden. Um, and it looks like in here... We've got um, salvia and coriander, chrysanthemum, uh, centauria, coreopsis. Um, oh, Ami Magus. Now, I do know that one. That's cow parsley. Absolutely gorgeous. Love a bit of Ami. So, um, that's going at the front. So, a very different look and feel. Different coloured flowers, different mix of feel, uh, flowers, and obviously it's going to. Smell different out there as well. Um, now this is the every kind of soil that I've pushed to the absolute boundaries. I don't, honestly don't know if it's going to um, take, but this is um, there's a mix that Meadow and My Garden do called any every kind of soil. Sorry, and the idea is that you know if you've got a problem area or a crappy area or a scrappy area or poor soil or it's a bit gravelly or nothing else seems to grow because the joy with wildflowers is a very shallow rooting so you know it's a, I suppose a bit like having a gravel garden and it says here based on country style and wildflowers that grow well regardless of soil conditions now remember that because I have really stretched that <laughs> um, highly recommended for novice gardeners all good for a colourful abundant display from the first year um, and again, there's there's all sorts in this. Uh, nigella and poppy and gypsophilia, coreopsis, delphinium, chrysanthemums, different types of um, hammy. So that will be quite fun. Um, now, those are the sort of main mixes I've been sowing so far. But there is also this I'm really excited about. There's a mix called aphid control. Um... And this is ideal for planting on your allotment, round your veg patch, near your fruit or your kitchen garden. Um, and the idea is that these, these flowers attract pests. So they'll go and spend time on um, these flowers rather than on the vegetables. Um, so I'm particularly excited about that. Now what I was going to do was see if I could plant this in and around the veg patch but what I might need to do is plant it next to it or you know slightly away from it otherwise they're just gonna um I think it might end up like I had at the farm where I, <laughs> I ended up planting all the things that pests love right next to the vegetables and so they had the most amazing time together I didn't end up with only veg. So I've got a nice, exciting abundance of seeds. But here's the thing. Um, you can't just chuck them out. Now, there's there's a fairly simple formula, I think. Um, now, don't forget that everything that I'm doing in the garden, um, almost every day, um, although obviously there's been a 10-day um, hiatus because I've been away, but almost everything I'm doing in the garden is captured on YouTube, so you can go search for me on YouTube um, at that Jez Rose, and there is uh, it's all of the videos are under this podcast, so series four of Root Springs and other things, and they're all there, so you can see me um, 
uh, talking about the wildflower mixes. You can see them. Uh, you can see me sowing them. You can see me preparing them. We talk about all the sort of challenges I've had day to day. So check those out as well. But here's the sort of, you know, the, the how-to rundown. Because successfully sowing the meadow is all in preparation. It, it, it's just like decorating a house, I suppose, in that sense. That you, you know, the in order for the final sexy bit, the bit that you're really interested in doing, which is the painting, in order for that to look good, you've got to put in the hard work at the beginning. You know, you've got to sand stuff down and clean it down and put filler in and all that kind of jazz before you get to the paint. The paint's kind of the end bit, right? Well, sowing a meadow is the same thing. So the, the first big thing is that the soil needs to be as bare as possible because any grass or weeds that are in there are going to compete with the seeds and they will grow quicker than the seeds so therefore they will swamp the seeds grow over them possibly even prevent them from germinating so you want to really spend some time clearing that area scalp the grass make sure there's no weeds and here's a big tip i made the biggest mistake ever which was to go which was to prepare all of the uh, ground that I was going to sow these seeds in and then went away for 10 days to America thinking I'll do that when I get back all the hard work's done I can literally hit the ground running of course when I came back some of the grass had started growing through and some of the weeds had started growing through so I had to go over it all over again so prepare it and then sow straight away don't leave it now, when you've done that, <clears throat> you've got a nice clear bit of soil. You're going to use a heavy rake, not the sort of clawy ones that you, you that you rake leaves up with, like a gravel rake, a nice solid rake. And you're just going to run that over it back and forth. You don't need to create massive deep ridges or furrows. You're just loosening the soil so it's nice and fluffy on top of it. And, uh, I mean, I just dragged over a couple of times. Every now and again, you get a particularly compacted bit of soil where you drag the rake over it doesn't really seem to do anything just give that a real good scrub as if you were getting dried baked beans off a plate or something like that and uh, which reminds me i must do the washing up um and that will just kind of break into that soil and loosen it up a little bit so you're looking for loose and fluffy a nice what they call tilth um so that the seeds land into some of those gaps and have something to settle into so when they germinate the roots can sort of get through that soil easier than if it's you know all dry and compacted um, once you've done that you sprinkle the seeds uh, and you just grab handfuls now don't do it with gloves on what i found all the time with um, casting seed with gloves on is that you don't get a really good idea of how much seed you've got and how much you're letting go of so you tend to use an awful lot more and therefore you waste more so unless there's a particular reason that you need to use gloves um, use a bare hand very finely kind of shake your hand backwards and forwards to and fro. you can see where it's going um, and just you know walk around making sure that you've got a nice even coverage all over and then when you've done that you can then trample all over it so that you're going to sort of create a, a bit of adherence um, so that the seeds don't blow over um, because you know you get a nice big gust of wind and then you find that all the seeds are at one end of the garden and not where, <laughs> not wherever you put them um but it'll also mean that they um, have greater contact with the soil so they're much more likely to germinate so nice and simple um, but it does take time and the bigger space you've got the more backbreaking it is now obviously everything i'm doing in the garden here is under direction of this book that was written in 1931 so i've done everything by hand i've not used any machinery 
and it, it's been hard. I'm not going to lie. Like the the preparation has been hard. I've enjoyed most of it, but it it's not been without its challenges. Particularly now that um, I'm kind of recovering from COVID, and I'm finding it very very difficult to to do some of that physical work. If you've got a big area, I definitely avoid trampling over the seeds and get a roller. Um, it would just be much quicker. Uh, but you know, I'm again trying to do everything on a budget here, so I wasn't going to buy a roller because that would be a bit disingenuous for me to buy a specialist kit and then tell you that you know we're doing everything on a budget. Um, so that's nice and simple. Now I'm obviously not a novice to wildflower meadows. I've been helping other landowners create bee-friendly wildflower meadows uh, when I was at the farm. Um, we created wildflower meadows at the farm as well, um, and there are plenty of other. Um, wildflower meadows that we've consulted on so it's something I've got quite a bit of experience in but I've never sown lots of different types of seed like I've done here um, because meadow in my garden have got lots of uh, different types of plants and flowers for different types of soil and you know what I think that's really important. I think you should check them out. Um, you can Google, obviously, meadow in my garden, um, or just go to meadowinmygarden.co.uk and see all the different mixes that they've got. I think it will give you a really good idea of just how many different varieties of native species there are, but also how many different mixes there are. And that will help you to be really successful. Now, by all means, you know, make your own if you want, but, I mean, these are not expensive and it's all, all the hard work's been done for you I've, I've actually found them incredibly easy to use um you know it will tell you what the sowing time is it will tell you the aspect whether they're semi shade or sun the soil types loam dry clay the average flowering period the average height um this one the bee heaven is going to be 80 centimeters can you believe it isn't that just going to be gorgeous can you imagine wading through 80 centimeter tall wildflowers alive with bees oh i just cannot wait uh, main colors and um, it tells you everything in here so i think there's um something sort of beneficial of, of getting you know something done but if like me you you know you've got some other seed kicking around or you you know understand what those wildflowers are and you can cobble together some of your own then mix your own up um, always put it in a bowl a nice big bowl bigger than you think you're going to need um, so that you can mix all of those seeds up and that's nice to be able to just every time you dip your hand in to cast them just you know give them a little shimmy around a little mix around so that you get a nice even distribution of those seeds and you haven't got you know big pockets of poppies because they fell to the bottom and big chunks of I don't know phacelia because it's a bigger seed and you you know, you grabbed a handful and it wasn't really mixed up. So m make sure you, um, um, you know, mix those seeds up before you before you throw them out. That's a nice good tip there. And then you want to be watering them, depending on whether it's raining or not, of course, uh, every couple of days really uh, until they're nice and established. And what does established mean? That's a really good question. I would say that when those seedlings start to come through and they are nice thick stems, you know, and they're getting kind of buds on, um, you know, a couple of leaves, they're still very delicate. Um, 
and the best way to think about you know whether a plant is strong and healthy is if it's about to flower and if it's growing buds you know because there's an awful lot of energy that's gone into developing that flower therefore the root structure is nice and strong so going to keep watering them every couple of days i've got one of these rotary sprinklers that i just need to you know pop out um i just leave that on for 15 minutes give the ground a nice good soaking um and just keep an eye on things really so it you know once you've got to the sowing it it's really easy it's just that first initial bit that's really important and i think is you know i think it's understandable that people want to skip that bit because it's the boring bit isn't it you know, you don't want to go to all the effort of the faffing around and the, I don't know, you know, <laughs> the hard work and effort. Um, but make sure you do. Oh, I forgot to say. So I was outside today with the doors open and um, the beautiful weather out here. Absolutely stunning. So I'm outside and I'm you know, raking up little bits of uh, soil and I'm sowing seeds and I'm trampling around. And I think, oh, do you know what? I'm really thirsty. I'm going to pop in to the kitchen really quickly. So the back doors are open. I pop in through the back door, and there in the kitchen, flying around and around and around the kitchen, are two swifts <laughs> having the time of their life. They're quite young, and they don't really know what's going on, but they're not panicking that much, but they're flying around and around. So I think, okay, I have a little chat. I say, guys, you can't be in here. Please don't poo everywhere, because this is the kitchen. And um, they're not really sure what's going on. So I open up the other patio door in the hope that they'll go out. One of them carries on flying around the kitchen, the other one thinks, oh God, I don't know where I am. I'll go through this door, which goes into the hallway. And then he thinks, oh gosh, where's this going? I'll go through this door, which goes into the lounge. So I'm now chasing a swift around the lounge, trying to negotiate with him. I've opened the door, uh, sorry, the window in the lounge, and I've said, look, you need to be out of here. Please don't land on the bookshelf. Please don't poo on the sofa. Please don't poo anywhere, but just don't poo. That would be really good. Um, so I try to gently sort of, you know, encourage him, and I'm going, oh, we're going up and down and up and down, swapping positions, and eventually flies out. I think, all oh, good. But instead of going into the kitchen and outside, he decides to fly along the hallway and into my study. So now I'm <laughs> thinking, oh, God, where's the other one? Because what if the other one panics and then comes looking for his mate? So I run into the study. I'm trying to encourage him to go out. Asking him again, please don't pull on the books. Please don't pull on my equipment and my computer. It would be quite nice if you could just go outside. So I run to um, the little cupboard. I grab a towel. And eventually he sort of flies into the window. Gently, he was okay. And does, you know, the flapping thing where they're thinking, why can't I get through this thing? Um, it looks like it's outside. So I grab him with the towel, nice and gently. Take him outside and I let him go. It was a lovely little moment. <laughs> I was quite like for it to not happen again any time. Um, talking to the house... The house has absolutely taken a back seat. Um, there is so much to do out in the garden that any ideas of painting bedrooms or finishing kitchens or all that kind of jazz have um, <laughs> well and truly gone out the window, unlike the Swift. Um, but that's, that's sort of cool, isn't it? I'm absolutely at my happiest in the garden. If I never paint another ceiling in my life, I'll be quite happy. I know I've got to, and I've really got to finish the kitchen as well, but... Unfortunately, you know, nature sort of demands when we do the things in the garden. Um, well, I don't know if it's unfortunate. It's kind of fortunate. Um, but there's some exciting stuff coming up. Um, obviously, I'm going to keep um, taking photographs probably every five days of the meadow and the meadow areas so that you can see how quickly they grow and how they establish. And the next bit I'm going to do, I've been planning um, the garden 
with help from Everyday Gardening from the book. Um, but actually, the list that I had and when I was going to do things has changed a bit because obviously nature and growing seasons and weather dictates what we need to focus on. So the seeds have sown. I really want to get some food um, growing in the garden. Your know, food's getting so expensive to buy; it makes absolute sense to grow, um, you know, some here. We had, I had a big vegetable and fruit garden and kitchen garden at the farm. I want to try and recreate as much of that as possible, but on a much smaller scale here, um, and only plant really what we eat and what we like eating. Um, you know, I see sometimes on TV people have got these big exotic gardens and they've gone off to find really unusual, um, but I, I don't know, food stuffs. And I think, well, that's really cool. Um, you know, good on you for, for doing that and planting something unusual. And it's fun to plant something unusual, I get that. But there are so many incredible heritage varieties that we've forgotten about, that we don't use, um, that maybe we should ask more questions and ask, you know, why am I growing a, you know, a cucumber melon? when I can just grow a cucumber, you know. Um, there are important foodstuffs, I think, that are much more useful to use day to day, you know, and tomatoes. And, and it, it gets more interesting, I think, because then you start to think about all of those f- f- um, fruit and veg and, and the food that we eat that's not seasonal. And when you start to grow your own, I think you become a bit more appreciative of the things that you can eat at certain times of the year um and i i might try that I mean, it's easier said than done isn't it because you know i do love a banana um all throughout the year and i do quite like an apple but you know apples in december isn't really um <laughs> isn't really in tune with the way that they grow is it mind you, you can keep them anyway so i'm going to try um next project with you guys is to plant this kitchen garden and we'll get their herbs sorted get the vegetables sorted get the fruit sorted i'm going to build some um try and grow them up because there's not a huge amount of space here Uh, recycling lots of the plant pots and digging into the ground so um for the first time ever i'm sort of pretty excited about how this might turn out and rather than just replicating what i did at the farm i'm being a bit sort of sympathetic with what i've got here so maybe you've got a bit of space in your garden that's not used Uh, maybe it doesn't do anything maybe it's an area where the lawnmower sits or maybe it's an area where the grass cuttings are or the compost is or maybe it's just overgrown grass underneath a tree because it's shady well now's the time to start looking at those and thinking what can i put there that's more beneficial to nature that might actually you know be quite fun for you as well and that probably the simplest and easiest and cheapest and quickest way would be to think about sowing some wildflower seed um so i encourage you to do that i've ordered a lawnmower uh, because the lawn desperately needs mowing Um, it's not a job I necessarily enjoy doing and the lawn is a project in itself because there's lots of weeds that need pulling out and there's lots of divots that need sort of levelling but obviously I don't want to let it get out of control and now I went to the lawn mowing section in John's book and of course there isn't really anything that says about uh, electric lawnmowers and petrol lawnmowers and all that kind of jazz so, um, 93, I'm just going to very quickly show you in here, because I can't remember what it's called. Um, a little nostalgic trip, really, because actually, for me, I remember 
um, using this with my grandma and my granddad. Um, I was allowed to mow the lawn when I was a, a little lad when I went there. And um, it's a mechanical lawnmower. Um, and <laughs> uh, John suggests that uh, mechanical lawnmowers work best and most quickly when the grass is dry, but for cutting with the scythe the early morning when the dew is still on the grass is the best and easiest time. I don't think I'm going to be buying a scythe. Um, but there's a brilliant uh, purchase that I've made today, which is an old push rotary lawnmower. You know, it's sort of got blades that spin round. You push it um, and they just cut the grass. Um, no petrol, no diesel, no electric. Um, really good for keeping fit and you know if you can then you know and you can pick them up really cheap because loads of people sell them on um, eBay or you know in the antique shop um, I'm quite excited to starting that um, yeah and seeing how far I can get with sort of old-fashioned traditional lawn mowing so next time you see me, gang, I'll probably be moaning because my arms and my shoulders ache and <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't got anything to, <laughs> to mow the lawn easily or quickly. Anyway, so I guess that's sort of it from me this uh, month. Um, I'm really, really looking forward to seeing how the, the meadow comes on. It is quite... Um, you have to practice patience with stuff like this, you know, because at the minute I'm sat looking at huge swathes of soil, just bare earth, and I so desperately want it to look lush and green, and I so desperately want the flowers to be in, but it does feel like a garden building site at the minute. But I know from experience that sometimes, you know, it, it seems like nothing's happening for a long time, and then all of a sudden everything comes together, and I think that's what this is going to feel like. I need probably a day to sort out the kitchen garden um, and I need probably a couple of days to dig the, the flower borders in either side of the, the lawn. But you're going to come on this journey with me and I'm going to show you how um, to do all of these different things and what I'm doing here as well. So the idea is the entire garden will be planted with wildlife in mind. Um, and to encourage wilding and to show you actually that wild gardens can be really pretty they can be really practical and they can be really fun to build as well so I'm hopeful that uh, even the most skeptical amongst you will uh, understand and see that actually a wild garden can be pretty lovely to look at too so um stick with me next episode I think we will um, uh, take a look at some of these other gardens and I'm going to talk to you about some of the things specifically that I'm putting into the kitchen garden um, and you'll be able to see on YouTube as well me constructing um, the you know the, the, the sort of outdoor kitchen. Now I've got an interview coming up I'm off to Kew Gardens to interview one of the curators there about John Coots and about what role Kew plays and has played historically in our accessibility to gardens and encouraging people to garden um, and I've got another exciting interview coming up. Uh, you might remember from uh, series 3 that I interviewed the wonderful, the hilarious Christine Walkden 
and she's agreed to come back um, to offer me some advice about some of the areas of the garden I'm creating because I realise I'm a bit out of my depth and I'd like to kind of speak to her about John's book as well and see what her thoughts are about gardening from yesteryear and whether there are any maybe pitfalls that I should try to avoid or um, you know really for just to tell me whether I'm crazy because I'd like to know that now really rather than <laughs> a little bit later on oh crikey now I'm gonna go and uh, finish putting some of these wildflower seeds into a bowl mixing them up and casting out uh, I think that shady area there under the tree that looks to me like probably the the one that needs to be done next. So, I hope you have a wonderful month, whatever you're up to. Catch me on social media. It would be great to hear and see what you're doing. And uh, I'll see you next time, gang. From me, the beautiful sunshine and the birds. I'm watching about seven butterflies chase all through the comfrey over there in the wild bit of the garden. And some bees. Gosh, it's wonderful, isn't it? What an incredibly privileged position we're in to be able to access outside spaces and to be able to curate our own. It's lovely. I've just been bitten by an ant. <laughs>